This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Ladies and gentlemen, I have to say, this is going to be one of the most important podcasts I think we've ever done. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable today, Salim Ismail, uh, who is the co-founder and chairman of ExoWorks, is a sought-after speaker, award-winning author, strategist, and entrepreneur. This gentleman not only travels extensively addressing topics, including breakthrough technologies and their impact on a variety of industries, including society in general, Salim founded ExoWorks in 2016 to help transform global business by capturing organizations into the world of exponential thinking. Currently, Salim is the founding CEO and helping to build a Singularity University and has been since 2010 as a founding executive director, but currently as its global ambassador as well. Award-winning entrepreneur in exponential organizations, sorry, I should say author of the award-winning exponential organizations, has been featured in numerous media outlets, including New York Times, Bloomberg, Business Week, Fortune Wide, and BBC. And his last company, get this, uh, Angstro was sold to Google in August of 2010. 10, and he gives over 150 talks every single year to audiences all over the world. Salim, welcome to Unstoppable. Great to be here. Fantastic. Well, I haven't forgotten who I am so far, so this is a good start. Mate, reading your bio, it really does read like the, the, the who's who of connected connectors in the entire world. Going through Singularity University, the thing that I, look, I think about is the six degrees of separation. And, you know, they say that we're only ever six people away from being connected to anyone on this planet. But I look at the level of connection and the connectivity that you have, and I sit back and I go, oh, my God, you literally are connected all the way to the top in some of the most uh, dominant and prominent and important industries in the world right now. But the question that I guess I just can't really escape is where did it all begin? How did you become so prolific in what you do? Uh, so, you know, uh, if you ask uh, many people that have kind of gotten to this level, the the fundamental answer is luck. Uh, we we uh, if we try to prescriptively say here's where we're going to go, it's never going to happen. Um, I think karma is dragging me, kicking and screaming along a certain path, and and you only see it after the breadcrumbs. You look back and you go, oh, I was there and there and there, and that got me there. And it's been a series of insane coincidences. Um, uh, with a mindset of always saying, okay, let's just go with whatever's coming and be with it and go with the flow. And if you have the courage to do that, then doors open up that you didn't expect. And Singularity is a great example. I was the head of innovation at Yahoo, and I set up a relationship between Yahoo and NASA to do some interesting projects. And the NASA people invited me to the founding conference uh, of Singularity University, where they brought 70 thought leaders together. I'd never heard of Ray Kurzweil or Peter Diamandis or the X Prize or even the Singularity, walked in totally blank and asked a lot of questions. Uh, and that may have been the key. And a few weeks later, Peter said, do you want to run it? So I, hung, I got home that day, my wife said, how was your day? And I said, I'm, I'm a dean, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> and so that kind of pattern has gone repeatedly. And you get to a point where you kind of go, okay, and I'm, I'm embracing this type of weird coincidence. And then you start to be able to manifest it. And that's another higher level of chaos. Yeah, that's a whole other topic of conversation. But in your timeline, at what point did you start to find a level of flow in, I guess you could say, whether it be your career path or your journey that you look back on now and go, man, there's a lot of breadcrumbs that were pretty obvious to me now, but at the time they weren't. Where did the first breadcrumb get dropped? Probably at university when I, actually the first one was probably we moved from India uh, when I was 10 years old to Canada. 
um, and I was really unhappy about it. Uh, um, but it, it set me up to be in a place that was a little bit more safe and and uh, uh, protective. Um, my father hated noise, dirt, pollution, and corruption. So India is not a great place if if you're if those issues are a problem. And so we ended up in Canada, which was one. The second one would probably be I was in my second year at engineering, uh, and I failed uh, my 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 semester. In fact, I failed so badly they kicked me out and said don't come back. And I, I appealed and I got back in and and I was hunting around for the least workload discipline where I could get a technical degree. And it turned out to be theoretical physics. So I did my degree there in that. And that was another one of these pivots, right? Um, and there's parallels with people. You always, life throws you these weird obstacles and, and your success is about how well can you navigate and, and overcome those obstacles and pivot around them. And the startup world calls them pivots nowadays. And uh, there's been a series of those along the way, maybe every few years. I've noticed that every five years or so, the universe throws me a total curveball and my everything changes. And I have to be ready for that. And so when it throws these curveballs, does that appear to be um, unpredictable chaos? Or to, does it appear to be a little bit of order in terms of, you know, the things that you, the questions that you're asking about life and yourself and where you're going? Um, it's usually at some level in underneath, I know I shouldn't be there and don't want to be there and I'm, it's not where I should be. But I, at the conscious level, I, I'm not able to really, you know, I'm at Yahoo and I'm the head of innovation. I'm a vice president. I'm on a certain track with stock options, et cetera. But underneath, I'm like, this isn't the way of transforming the world. A big company is not really set up for doing this. But I, it's hard to change that on a conscious level. I'm about to get married and et cetera, et cetera. And then Microsoft tried to buy Yahoo. The whole place goes into chaos. And it was a, a nice time to make an exit. And so I just exited out. And so that kind of thing happens quite a lot where uh, I can feel it's not right. There's something coming. But when the change happens, you're never really ready for that change. And, mm -hmm. and you have to navigate that chaos for a while. That's interesting. Oftentimes, do you think that's why the change happens to actually give us the skills that are missing? I think at the spiritual level, it calls you, for, calls the change in. And then at the human level, you have to force yourself to adapt and you either make it or not. And, and then you start again. And you and you just go through onion layers of that. And so after the the buyout from Yahoo or the exit from Yahoo, what did you do then? So I was casting around, and I and I joined Yahoo because you know to be lead the incubator and create products that would be really disruptive was incredibly exciting to me. And I had thirty or forty of the best uh, software developers in the world and working in this incredible playground. The problem that I learned was that when you try anything disruptive in a big company, the immune system attacks you. Um, wow, and and, really and you spend all your time fighting the antibodies and nobody's having any fun in that situation. And so when the Microsoft bid tried to happen, I took that opportunity to exit. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do then. I said to my wife, uh, I want to do something that really changes leadership globally. And she said, that doesn't sound like a job description. Um, Did you say neurally changes leadership? Uh, globally changes globally, leadership. Globally, right. Yeah. And I wanted to do something that really meaningfully transformed how the world was being run. And she said, that doesn't sound like a job description. And she was kind of un unhappy about that. Um, and uh, I said, let me give me three months. And then if I can't find a meaningful uh, occupation path, then I'll just take whatever biz dev executive job I can, etc. And uh, two months and, and a half into it, they called me and said, there's this founding conference. And that was the end of that. And that was the Singularity University. Yeah. And it's not so, often you get to launch a, a university, you know, so no. you got to go for it.
So at what point did you get this? Because it's really interesting because this is correlating with, um, I guess you could say, some taps on the shoulder that I've been getting for the last couple of years around reinventing civilization and getting you know specific intuitions and then as of 2019 some pretty hectic visions that have been coming through around the requirement for us to reinvent civilization because the way that we're doing doing it is currently not working um i'm curious to know at what point did you start looking at civilization and asking big questions and going okay uh, there's something here that's not fucking working and i can't see this getting any better and you know because most people would point to you know um I guess you'd say uh, the global, the environmental changes. Other people would talk to, you know, um, uh, capitalism. Some people look at democracy and even communism and going, okay, this doesn't seem to be working. You know, we look at the the, 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 the structures in government around the world or structures in commerce around the world. At what point, what was it that scratched your itch? You go, okay, we need to look at this differently. Uh, it was when you, when I started at Singularity University and you realized there's a dozen technologies moving at light speed. And the, and the intersections are causing massive breakthroughs. And I frame it as, I call it 20 Gutenberg moments. You know, in the 15th century, the printing press changed the world. And we actually call that a Gutenberg moment because it fundamentally instigated this transformation in society by democratizing literature. And, and anybody could read the Bible and not just the priests who interpret it. And um, uh, the, but you think about solar energy that fundamentally transforms the world. Blockchain fundamentally transforms the world. AI, uh, uh, CRISPR, uh, autonomous cars, drones. I think we have 20 of them hitting us at the same time. And my, uh, my, the next follow on conclusion and observation is that forcing function breaks every mechanism by which we run the world. Um, and so I've been studying it for the last 10 years in quite a bit of detail. And I literally cannot see an institution that survives this. You know, journalism is broken, education is broken, democracy is breaking. And we're kind of looking at the bowling pins fall um, and the, the technology forcing function is kind of just wreaking havoc. And we don't have leaders that can navigate this. All our leadership training is incremental 20th century status quo, main, maintain the status quo type models. And we're kind of, the train is pulling into Black Swan Central, right? And so we need a totally new paradigm. And uh, I noticed that in my life, the breadcrumbs are, are those, the, the kind of tracking of all of that. And then you get this broader picture and you go, oh, we need to, we need to operate at this scale. And I feel uh, gifted that I can think at that level and have access to technology and people that can make a difference. And then it behooves you then to do something about it. It appears to be a, a lot of the leadership in many areas, whether it be in governance or even in commerce, seems to be very politically orientated. What is it that you see needs to shift at a leadership level in order for the rest of the world to be able to catch up with what's happening at a technological level for this change to be affected in a positive way versus total chaos erupting around the world? So uh, at a kind of an umbrella level, the way I frame that discussion is, is we have two choices as a global species right now. We, had a, we have a Mad Max path and a Star Trek path. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, you look at the US, it's, it's clearly heading down a Mad Max path. I mean, you look at the events of a few weeks ago and uh, but technology is actually driving us towards abundance. Uh, we'll have abundant energy in the next few years, abundant water. Uh, we have abundant education today available online, uh, healthcare, etc. And we actually can tilt that future very quickly. The problem is all of our our social structures, political structures, uh, nation states are all governed by scarcity. 
right? Um, almost every business in the world for 5,000 years depends on scarcity. If you, if you didn't have scarcity, you didn't have a business. And how do they navigate? So everybody's desperately trying to maintain the scarcity model um, to because they know it. And, and one, one maybe my fundamental observation about people is that people would much rather be comfortable than happy. Um, and, and they're comfortable knowing that this is how the world works and this whole paradigm. And God help you if you actually move to this totally new paradigm that makes everything better. So what do you see is required for us to shift from this Mad Max scarcity model? Because it seems to me if we keep going down the scarcity model, it is going to end up in a Mad Max kind of way, which to me kind of underpins the fact that, or not the fact, or the assumption that democracy is broken. Because I've never been someone who's been interested in politics until we had the bushfires last year. And then when COVID hit, I became very interested in politics all of a sudden very quickly. I'm sure like many people were around the rest of the world. But one of the things that became apparent to me, and maybe I'm wrong here, and I'd love to know your perspective, Salim, but it appears to me that democracy is underpinned by capitalism. Capitalism is essentially driven by levels of scarcity in order to acquire more in, a, in, in the effort to take something that creates less. What do we have to do to create that shift? Is it moving towards a universal structure where there is such things as universal income, where we are get, taking the best of democracy and the best of communism and blending two together? Because it appears to me if we give people too much freedom, they're going to fuck shit up, you know, yes. which is, to me, wh where, do you see it? where do you see the middle ground? So I don't see democracy and capitalism going hand in hand. I think democracy enables capitalism. Because right? okay. the, the freedom that comes from democracy uh, allows entrepreneurs to flourish and then capitalism comes from that, right? Okay. Um, what, what has happened with capitalism though is that it's eaten the regulatory system. Uh, and the regulatory system that keeps a constraint on it is, is important. And you need a balance between that. Otherwise you end up with Texas like yesterday where the, it's so capitalized that nobody, uh, so market driven that nobody can deal with an emergency and the whole place I run goes without power in, in any kind of a, a, a freak accident environment. Uh, just for reference, the entire state of Texas went without power during the biggest snowstorm they've had in 100 years. Uh, wow. And so uh, because the market structure has totally failed and nobody has any incentive to fix it in the short term. So the whole thing is without power and will stay that way for a while because of it. So the problem with capitalism is it needs regulation and, and, and democracy has enabled that. But then capitalism in many countries and extreme in the U.S. has basically eaten democracy. And Corruption. we have what's called regulatory capture, right? right. Uh, the money is what buys you an election today in the US, not yes. the best ideas, etc. Um, the, the, where I see it going is two things. Um, I think there's an incredible opportunity for a universal basic income. I'm a massive fan of that. We've studied this in great detail and the, uh, the experiments that have actually run true UBIs have been staggeringly successful. Um, and so that's a vector I think we end up in. The challenge from going from a labor union job economy taxation structure to that is such a huge leap. I have no confidence in our political structures of getting us there. I think the private sector will have to lead us there. So I think that's one. Uh, the second thing I think is I, I'm using a phrase that I'm starting to write an article about called technological socialism. Um, Typical traditional socialism doesn't work because government centralized planning is too inefficient and leads to horrible corruption, right? Uh, but if you think about Uber, Uber is actually a socialist app. It's assets, uh, allocating assets between people when it's algorithmically driven can be incredibly efficient. 
You need very little regulation to make a system like Uber work. The the combination of payments and rating systems, et cetera, means you can be pretty hands-off. So I think there's a there's a wonderful vector there we can explore in terms of how we structure ourselves going forward. Um, and then the umbrella target is we're heading into an abundance economy. And one of the big insights with all these accelerating technologies is that technology delivers abundance. Technology takes a domain that's scarce and it makes it abundant whether it's information or solar energy or clean water or healthcare, et cetera, or vaccines, et cetera. And so we need to be planning for a society of abundance, yet all of our mindsets, tribal thinking, uh, social structures, the legal structures, government structures are all geared in scarcity. I've kind of seen this happening in Australia, and I think it's happening in the US right now. Um, we are being, for the most part, floated by incredible levels of stimulus. Um, at the business level, it's been called JobKeeper, where businesses are being paid money to not let go of staff members. Um, then there's another one which is called JobSeeker, I think it is. JobKeeper, JobSeeker, is that right, Paul? JobSeeker, where people are actually being paid twice the amount of the normal welfare rate in the event of they're losing their job as a result of COVID. I know in the US and in other countries, they're following suit in order to essentially um, remove the greater catastrophe or, or deeper levels of recession. But to me, on some level, that might seem to be paving the way for the concept of a universal income. Would you agree yeah. with that? Yes, I think it does. Um, and I think it will head that way. Most of the payment structures that we have are just getting us back to where we were 20, 30 years ago, right? We've been slowly demolishing the middle class minimum wage structures and the working class has been left further and further behind and can't participate in this equity economy and the income economy that's going on. So part of that is just redressing that balance plus the catastrophe of suddenly, I mean, the US is maybe the worst example of this. 40% of the US cannot put $400 together in an emergency, right? That's a staggering number. That's just a staggering number for the most advanced, richest country in the world. It's an, it's an incredible indictment of the failure of the Reagan-type model and neoliberalism. The question is, what do we follow people. it with and how do we... Yeah. yeah, it's that bad. I'll give you one other stat that blows my mind. Over the last 10 years, 40% of American corporate profits have gone to the financial services sector. 40% of profits. So the, so the financial world is literally sucking the value out of the rest of the economy. Uh, and then using regulatory structures to keep themselves protected. Banks are too big to fail, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, and we're starting to see now the edges of that, that umbrella start collapsing down. Uh, and we think Corona will be, will be that uh, challenge. I see the economy fundamentally imploding in the next two years. So that was going to be my next question. Do you see, and uh, you know, everyone from Harry Dent to, you know, I think my auntie has been predicting a massive crash and then what's really interesting covid comes along and i was like okay this is gonna be it the markets are gonna tumble property prices are gonna tumble we're gonna finally see you know the big reset yet the markets are achieving all-time highs property yeah. prices in australia like in byron bay where i am right now it's fuck so excuse the language it is stupid like it's next level of stupid we've seen three million dollar houses that were listed 18 months ago being you know sold in some cases for 12 million dollars today and i'm looking at this going there's all sorts of stupid going on here i can't see this ending in a great way as soon as the stimulus runs out but then we're driven by other economic factors or demographic factors such as you know uh, uh lack of supply when it comes to housing what do you see again and this is crystal ball stuff i know you can't say well this is exactly what's going to happen but what do you think is going to happen is it inevitable 
I think it is. Let me give you the what I think is the causative factor of, of what we're seeing today is massive uh, dilution of the money supply, right? Um, we have over the, la the last 10 years since the 2008 financial crisis, the stock markets, we've had a boom economy. It's not because the underlying economy is doing better. It's just because we've been printing a truckload and truckload of money. Uh, essentially, we've been printing ourselves. Right now, over the last 15 years, we have, uh, for every increase in GDP globally, we're creating $4 increase in debt. So we basically increase debt four times for every dollar of increase uh, in GDP. So we're basically growing our way uh, out of this. Now try going to a bank and saying, lend me $100,000 and I'll return you 25000 and watch how quickly you get shown the door. But there's no limit to governments printing money and they're all competing to deflate their economies to boost exports. And therefore they're all incented to do it. So it's a race to the bottom across the board. And so essentially this last 10 years of boom has been um, uh, uh, the dollar uh, money supply expanding just a ridiculous amount. Just this year with COVID, we've increased the dollar money supply by about 50%. So we've printed 50%. That means, that means that's why asset prices are going up so dramatically to adjust for that. Right? That's why Bitcoin is so important. And uh, at some point that will come home to roost. The question is when. And it, it's, I predict it'll be uh, the second half of this year when people realize that the, the governments can't keep pumping money into it and everybody will move to assets and the whole thing will come collapsing on itself. Is this just some kind of long-term establishment play that they know, well, look, 40% of all profits are sucked out of the economy into the finance sector. The finance sector is essentially driving, you know, I guess, regulation at a government level, which on some level might be affecting, you know, the, the stimulus and the printing of money. Is this just kind of some long play by the establishment to fucking pump everything up, suck everything out? When it all crashes, there's going to be, you know, the Blue Seed Island somewhere where the establishment and all their, their, their posses are living while the rest of the world, you know, plays Mad Max for the next 20 years? Um, there's a little bit of that, but not enough that there, there, it, there's some of that at the short-term level. I don't think the, the game is being played at a long-term level. Long, uh, short-term meaning, if you know that, like say in 2008, we knew the mortgage bonds and the derivatives were very, very overvalued, and they kept pumping money into it and extracting the very last dollar out of it, and then the whole thing collapsed, right? And they knew that was happening, and they kind of structured themselves, hedged themselves, etc. Can't remember it was Goldman Sachs or who it was that pumped these things and then shorted them on the other side to protect themselves on the downside, made money, a ton of money going both ways. That all works until the entire system falls apart, then you've got nothing. Uh, and, and that's what we, I think will happen over time, that the entire system will collapse and then you have, uh, you go back to raw zero. And one of the things that's prompting my kind of work right now is if you look back in history, there's and civilizations of the past, the Romans, the Incas, the Mayans, the Aztecs, they all got to a very sophisticated level. And then they hit a boundary condition that they couldn't solve and they instantly collapsed. Um, and if you talk to the Yuval Hararis and Niall Ferguson's of the world, we're kind of there now, all the conditions are there. Uh, and so I think the work to be done by folks that are thinking about this is, let's build those uh, um, uh, institutions of the next generation and the next wave so that when the existing collapses, it fails over elegantly, right? You have the Steve Bannons and the Trumps of the world saying, let's tear down the existing. Well, that's like going into Iraq without a plan. You, you, you end up in a horrible amount of chaos. Uh, if you're gonna tear down the house, which I understand, make sure you've got a plan for the afterwards. Mm. 
So it seems to me that on some level, it's unavoidable that there's going to be some level of chaos in terms of how that's expressed, I guess it's going to be up to how we as different civilizations and cultures um, regulate the emotional um, temperature and intensity of that picture being, I guess you could say, all those ideals being shattered. But do you predict that this is going to be some form of, and I, and I'm, I don't want to choose my words very carefully here because, you know, I know you come from a background in theoretical physics. You know, I'm very much of the belief that, you know, this entire Newtonian space that we lived in is made up of equal parts of positive and negative charge that are expressed not just in nature, but also in our ability to see events. So every good situation is always going to have an equal and opposite bad perspective, as is every bad perspective or situation is going to have an equal and opposite good. It just comes down to the consciousness of the individual to be able to balance both in the moment to see the synchronicity yeah what does that collapse in your mind based on the current temperature of consciousness in different governments and institutions the current temperature of you know military posture with different economies what does that collapse look like to you uh, I think that's that's a hard question right that's like saying um, this building's about to fall. Where's which direction which is it going to fall? fall? In, yeah. Right. You can you can give some indications and you get to get to, but you're better off watching the initial situation and going okay, run if you're in this path. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, right. I think that's the way it'll go. It's hard to predict, uh, and and this is where it's a very dangerous job being a futurist. Uh, you can kind of make a general prediction. Um, for example, Paul Sappho, who's one of our forecasters and futurists at Singularity, made a comment on stage in 2010. And he said, I don't expect the U.S. to exist as a country in 30 years. And that was 10 years ago. And when wow. you look every two years, he's like, yeah. oh, yep, yep, tick, tick, tick. And these boxes are being ticked along the way. Now, you don't know which boxes. You didn't know what, how crazy it would get, whatever. But it, you know it's heading that direction. And so it's like, it's like um, an avalanche coming down. You know you're going to get buried. You just don't know which side is going to come from first. But the general trend is definitely a, a whoosh in this direction. So I think that's uh, one. The, the question of the timing of that is very hard to predict. Uh, but I think it is happening. And the question is, what does it, what does it look like? I think the opportunity is to, to say, OK, and, and there's a fellow called Lawrence Bloom, who gave us an amazingly elegant analogy for where we are. He said, look at look at the last few hundred years and look at capitalism and fossil fuels as a booster rocket that got us out of low Earth orbit. It took us out of a horrible scarcity, uh, depravity mindset. We've lifted the world's uh, wealth incredibly. Um, you know, 200 years ago, 94% of humanity lived in extreme poverty. 94%. And that's on price parity, $2,011 equivalent. Uh, today, we're down below 9%. And that's just a staggering progress made by the incredible advances in, in this. But that when you have a booster rocket and it lifts you out of low Earth orbit, at some point, you have to jettison that rocket and take on a much lighter craft to take you to the next level. And we're kind of at that point now where we need to get rid of the booster rocket. Because if you keep holding on to it, you plummet back down. And there's people like uh, various um, um, politicians and so on that really like their fossil fuels. They like capitalism, uh, but it's run its course. And now we need to find those next structures and build that new craft. And I think that's a very elegant way because it doesn't make the past wrong. It's We couldn't have gotten here without those incredibly powerful forces. But now we need new thinking to take us to the next level. Some people might suggest that part of that rocket that needs to be jettisoned is two-thirds of the population because we are, as a species, too, 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 um, too prevalent. 
We're, yep. And we're too viral in nature in terms of the way that we operate, you know, not living in harmony with our environment, sucking things out of it and leaving things worse than what they were. And I know I, I don't give the best picture of fucking humanity, do I? But, um, but I, I've heard many great <laughs> thought leaders compare humans to viruses, you know, in terms of the way that we behave when we're unconscious. Yes. You know, if we were to go back and look at, you know, um, you know, going back maybe hundreds of years ago, possibly more, we would look at a, a you know, different species of humans around the world that actually lived in harmony. Yeah. You know, whereas now we seem to be so far beyond that. So it, it, go ahead. Yeah, I disagree with that viewpoint. Um, I do okay. disagree on, on a couple of levels. One is uh, when you look at the past, we kind of glorified this wonderful time when people lived in harmony with nature. Well, life was short and brutish and horrible. You know, you had, if, you, if you were a woman, you had no idea if your husband going out on a hunt was ever coming back. Yeah, right? fair enough. And some yeah. animal could eat him and you'd never see him again. You'd never know if you were ever going to see him again. You just had to presume, oh, he got eaten and that's it. And you have to live with that and then raise your kids in that. And you just had no idea. Um, at any minute, a bacteria could infect your tooth and you died. You know, and uh, this is the world until the last two, three hundred years. So mm. we romanticize the past. If, I wouldn't trade places so and true. go back to any other time and challenge anybody that really would. So that's one. The second one, we, we are definitely not. I think the word, the key word you hit on there was conscious. We've been growing the world, growing ourselves um, uh, subconsciously and unconsciously. And we've, we've created this extractive environment. And yeah. I, I'll go back to the booster rocket analogy. When the booster rocket takes off, it burns the crap out of everything around it it produces a ton of waste and horrible thing etc but at least it gets you out of where you were right and so we are most of us in the world are living incredibly wonderful lives of of living at much higher levels of Maslow's hierarchy than any of our forefathers mm, could ever dream so of true. right and so I, I tend to be on the optimist side of it now there's no question if we went back 50 years ago if we knew what we were going to do to the planet might we have done things done things differently absolutely and as we go forward in this next generation of AIs complicated AIs and biotech breakthroughs, etc. Let's make sure we're really, really aware of how we're instrumenting ourselves uh, going forward, because the any mistakes uh, in the in the kind of the future with technologies that are unbelievably exponential, the damages uh, can be exponential. And I, I'll, I'll, I mean, I had give a talk. I do a work, late night um, kind of a French salon workshop on metaphysics, philosophy and the meaning of life uh, coming Ooh. from my theoretical physics roots. And my Where father came. Yeah, sorry. Oh, is this just is this something you just do in your own house? I, I you do, do this on kind of online? ad hoc once a month or every few months. So I get a group of people together and we do this late night discussion on stuff. Oh, I did it for all God. the singularity classes because when you see the full implications of uh, the future of technology, you really ask the big questions about why are we here? What does it mean to be human? What's the future of humanity, etc. And it's hard to become practical unless you have some framing for it. So I, how do I get I, in on I, that? I, just out of the question, just as a side note, say you might say you can, I'm just going to ask the question: How do I get in on one of those? Oh, I'll, I'll let you, you know can't. when we're doing it. We'll, we'll do another oh. one in, a, in, about, in about three weeks. So I'll let you know. Bless your cotton socks. Go okay. <laughs> okay. So we, um, we uh, and my father, who's uh, 93, came to one of these. And somebody put up their hand and said, I really loved your talk, Fixing Civilization. My dad's hand goes up and he goes, can I heckle? <laughs> I said, yeah, of, course, of course you can. And he said, I, I disagree with your talk 
completely. And I said, really, you, you don't think we need to fix civilization? And he goes, no, of course we do. The problem is we are not civilized. We have not civilized the world. We have materialized the world. Oh, right. And it was like, damn, <laughs> like, oh, there's the wisdom that. of the elders right there, uh, wow. putting a, a really wonderful perspective on what's happened. So what we've done over the last few thousand years is we've materialized the world. Now it's time mm. to actually civilize it. Right. Oh, I love that. So that's that's my dad. Okay. I've, there are so many more questions I want to ask you. This is doing my head in because I'm going, okay, I've got eight minutes. Let's do this well. Um, how does Salim Ismail prepare for what's next? How do the people around you, because I look at Elon Musk as a great example. He goes, I don't want to own any homes and I'm going to put all my money into getting to fucking Mars because I want to get out of here. You know, and I know I'm, I'm making a little bit of a comical kind of observation here, but yeah. it, there seems to be a level of... Okay, is that a comical observation or has Elon kind of, you know, got a level of intellect where he's going, okay, there's clearly going to be a massive level of crash across the board. I'm going to pull out all my money out of anything material, put it to the, into the only thing that I can do that's going to get me to a place where we can reinvent from scratch. Right. So from Ismail, from Salim's perspective, and again, I mean, this is a bit of a financial slash philosophical slash, you know, uh, question around life, love, family and how to prepare. What are you doing to prepare? Um, I don't believe that we have the bandwidth or the uh, capability of lifting humanity off Earth. Uh, certainly not in the short term and certainly not in time for climate collapse, for example. So we're going to have to deal with whatever happens here, here. And I'm not sure I'd want to be the first few people living in a hermetically sealed bubble on Mars. Uh, it's going to yeah, be incredibly boring. And Especially one bad guy with a pin will blow the whole deal. Right? <laughs> uh, and so so you, you have a very delicate situation. I, I Even though we were based at NASA, etc., I remember talking to the astronauts and they just went, no, we're bags of water. We are not. We will send avatars and robots and 3D imaging into space and live vicariously through that virtual reality. But I don't believe humanity will, will go into space the way we think it will. So that's one. So if we go with the assumption that we kind of no matter what we do we have to fix things down here certainly mm -hmm. for the you know 99.9 percent of the population that is stuck here let's figure out what we need to do here now if we're entering abundance uh, the reason i dis differ from the earlier comment that was made about uh we're too many people in the world uh it's it's not taking into account the unbelievable advances in technology via agriculture, vertical farming, solar energy, clean water, et cetera, that are coming along. And I can give you a couple of examples if you want to, but if we take those into account, we actually are living very wonderful lives and we're not extracting. You look at any, a country like India, which has 1.3 billion people, fly over India and look at how empty it really is, right? There's nobody there. Australia is the, the big same. cities. Australia, Australia is the even same. And Canada got you know. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're, we're nowhere. I think the, the we can certainly, the problem is we're using up too many materials in an unhealthy way mm -hmm. and it's not regenerative and it's not sustainable. That's the challenge. Do you see that changing now? Like obviously with COVID coming in, it seems to be in many in many respects, it's, COVID's been a great way to hijack attention away from this whole argument around climate change to initiate things that are actually affecting it in very positive ways. Yeah. So I think of COVID at a, I'm going to go to a spiritual level. I think of COVID as a spiritual gift that with his nature saying to humanity, slow the hell down. 
um, you're moving at light speed, bouncing through airport terminals, and you're not stopping to smell the roses. And if you don't want to do it, we will do it to you. And you just slow down, stop, enjoy your, appreciate your family, spend time at home, get to know your neighbors, and and this is your chance to really get to know it. Unless we send something more serious your way, and so that's I think the gift. And note that we have with COVID the first ever real win against climate change. Uh, we've never known, none of us have ever known what absolutely clean skies and clean air looks like. And now we do. And I think we will be very unhappy if we went back to the old way. And what we're working on with our ecosystem is to say, okay, the global super tankers ground to a halt. Our current instinct is to restart those engines, to start restart it the way we, the way we were going, which is terrible for climate change, income inequality, resource extraction, etc. Let's, while it's stopped, grab that wheel and yank it and have it turn off and start in a better direction. You've said a few times about the abundant, the uh, the scarcity economy and the abundance economy. Um, before we finish, and I've only got a few minutes to do this, what does the abundance economy look like as an everyday person and yeah. as an entrepreneur? So let me use the music industry as an example. Uh, Twenty years ago, we used to sell music as a scarcity model you'd sell cassettes dvds cds and you bought the thing and you and you listen to it at home etc etc then we information enabled and digitized music and all the seven or eight major music studios that made it have very nice living selling scarcity basically disappeared and evaporated and now you have itunes and spotify selling abundance on a subscription model right ten dollars a month all you can eat and, and Lord help you uh, if you can figure out how to want, listen to 50 million songs. Um, we think that transformation as an entrepreneur is where the world is going in all sorts of sectors, education, transportation, energy, healthcare, et cetera, where we'll get to that point. Uh, we used to pay a lot for information services and now most information is free. Uh, we now uh, figure out how to filter it down, et cetera. And now what we'll do is we'll move transportation to an, a subscription model, right? We'll move energy to a subscription model Etc. More and more domains will move that way. So as an entrepreneur, figure that out. And I wrote this book, Exponential Organizations. And what we learned in the book was that on the internet, we've learned how to collapse the cost of demand using viral loops and online marketing, etc. And we figured out the demand side. What exponential organizations have figured out, how do you dramatically drop the cost of supply? You think of the cost of Airbnb's cost of adding a new room to their inventory is near zero. If you're high, you have to build a whole economy, a whole hotel. And now we're seeing a whole breed of new companies coming into uh, industries with a very low marginal cost of supply and completely transforming it. So I'm going to assume, based on what you're saying there, no one has to lose. Because if, if businesses are moving to a, an exponential model or a subscription model, um, you know, there would be the assumption, well, if I have to give everything away and if once upon a time this information was worth something, especially if, let's say, we are a services business or an education business or a consulting business or, you know, maybe even a university, once upon a time this, this information would have cost me $40,000 to learn over a three, four-year period. But now you're telling me I can access it for free as long as I've got a laptop and, a, you know, an internet subscription. How do we ensure that there is a balance and that there isn't, you know, a whole bunch of institutions, organizations and facilitators of information that don't go bust and bang as a result of providing this information, you know, into the ecosystem in the first place? Oh, there will be a ton of companies going bust. Uh, and 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 we need that kind of creative destruction to allow us to move to the next level, right? Um, the the take the car industry. 
you know, take BMW, their tagline is we're the ultimate driving machine and we're pretty clear nobody's going to be driving. So that's kind of a big tension to navigate. And if they can't navigate that future, what we've seen with disruptive innovation throughout the centuries is that the incumbents almost never make it to the other side. Uh, and you get a completely new breed of entities take, that take it on to the next level. And and we're seeing that now repeatedly. The metabolism has been increasing. And I fully expect the next wave of transportation companies, et cetera, to totally not be the BMWs and Toyotas of the world um, uh, because they're too stuck in the old models. And so uh, we'll see that healthy uh, uh, constructive destruction happening and and then that will gear the transformation for where we're going. And there's lots of cases to say we we're selling 95 million new cars a year out there today. If you own a car, it sits empty 96 percent of the time it's sitting empty. Right. This is a terribly inefficient use and we can do things much better going forward. One final question: What do you see? Is this, and I'm curious because obviously I work in the, um, um, the I get the information services education space. You obviously playing a very big game in Singularity University. What do you see the next wave of education looking like under the abundance economy? Yeah, so I think there's two or three key things. I think number one, we're moving from a supply side to a demand side model. So in traditional education, we would go to university, get a degree, get expertise in accounting, uh, legal, becoming a lawyer, becoming a doctor, learning some craft, being really good at that, and then selling, hoping to sell that in the marketplace, in the job marketplace, right? And you are constantly people asking, what education should my kid get so they can get a job in the workplace? Essentially, all of our education today is job schooling. Uh, and so that's, but it's supply side driven where we find, we kind of take on supply and then we hope to sell it. What we're seeing in this new wave is that education will become demand driven, where you say, what problem do you want to solve? Mm. And then go acquire the skills and technologies and pull them into place to solve that particular problem. Today, when somebody takes on a new job, they get a new role and then they go, okay, what, are, what skills do I need to take on and be able to do this new job? And we, if you ask kids, what problem do you want to solve? They will be much more passionate about um, uh, uh, getting into that and trying to solve that problem. So that's one pattern. The second pattern is that we're moving from educational systems that are push systems. Today, we, we get a bunch of kids into a classroom and we try and cram algebra into them, right? And mostly they're thinking about lunch. But we're going to much more of a pull model in the same way, as I said. Today, we pull down the learning and modules as we need to for whatever task at hand. One of the most profound observations that we saw at Singularity University was that if you're doing a master's degree in any of these fast-moving technologies like advanced robotics or biotech or neuroscience, today, literally by the time you finish your master's degree, you're out of date because the field is moving faster than our ability to teach it. That's a structural issue that can't be solved. And the final one is the concept of a job is disappearing, right? Uh, we, as you go into UBI type structures uh, over time, as uh, fast as possible, you don't need to have the traditional models operate. And so all of those three combined mean that we're in for a radical transformation in education where I should just be able to go uh, pick up an online degree or online certification for a very low cost. Uh, driven by what a problem I want to solve. Uh, a great mentor once said to me, um, solutions have no value. They only derive their value from the problems that they solve. And I think that really kind of is the entrepreneurial equation, you know, depending on what you're looking for will depend on what problems you're, you're able to solve. What are you investing in right now? I know I said one more, sorry. Um, 
put all your money in Bitcoin. That would be one easily uh, easy example. But I'm putting all my money into the ecosystem and all my time into the ecosystem we're building, which is now about 8,000 people around the world, and yeah. training them in the tool sets for transforming the world. Salim, thank you so much. I, I've gone three minutes over and I never do that. I just have never been so captivated, I have to say, probably in the last you know 300 odd podcasts. Can I be so bold as to say, can we get you back at some point in the future? Because this has been ha ha oh, happy, happy to do it. You are absolutely phenomenal. So, Salim, if people want to find out more about you, more about Singularity University, more about you know what it is that you do and the genius you bring to the world, where's the best place for people to go and look, mate? Uh, my website is salimasmail.com, but that's just a boring kind of site for me. Uh, SU.org is Singularity University, which I'm mostly out of these days because the book has kind of taken over my life. Uh, the main website I would point people to is openexo.com which is a platform of our 8,000 community where we have very vibrant discussions and we do give free training on all of this, uh, all, all of our material so people can take this. The big problem we're working on is how do you solve the immune system problem and not just in big companies, but also in the, in the public sector where you have to fight existing policy. And we've actually cracked it. So we now have very viable tool sets to solve those problems. And by enabling that and giving that out to as broad an audience as possible, then we're able to really enact transformation. Salim, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your wisdom, for your information, but also for the genuine humility that you bring to the space that you hold, mate. Um, there's a genuine abundance that is held in a humble space and you literally are the epitome of that. So thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Salim Ismail on Unstoppable. We'll have all those links uh, in the section below. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com